The scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah and the Gospel of Mark. A reading from Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And now a reading from Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The Word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you have given us this opportunity to be together right now. Help us to quieten our hearts, to open our hearts, to open our ears, to be willing to hear what you have for us today on this Easter Sunday. We pray for the resurrection of our own lives, even as we gather here to celebrate your resurrection. So give us grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've often joked that I should preach a sermon on the Incarnation some Easter Sunday just to see if people are really listening just to throw you all a curveball. But honestly, this particular account of the resurrection is kind of its own curveball. Do you notice what is missing from this account of the resurrection? Uh, Jesus? It's the Easter, this Mark 16, 1 through 8, it's the Easter account with no glimpses of the risen Jesus. Peter and the other disciples are nowhere to be seen. The women don't cry out in joy. They respond with alarm and terror and amazement. The angel's announcement of good news inspires neither belief nor transformation. We witness no Easter proclamation, no narrative arc 
from hopelessness to certitude. Instead, we witness in this particular reading fear, fight, flight, and silence. But never fear, we're going to fill in some blanks. Because in many ways, the women represent all of us. They represent anyone who's trying to believe if this is really true, whether for the first time or the thousandth time. And if so, what does it mean? The text says that they felt terror and amazement. Words where we get our English words trauma and ecstasy. And that's what will come up for us if resurrection takes root in our lives. So first off, we should say that apparently Easter is terrifying. <laughs> I mean, it starts innocently enough. Just after sunrise, they come to the tomb. They come to do what far too many cannot do in the wake of COVID's rage, and that is to touch and anoint the body of their loved one to provide a proper burial to honor the life lost with a memorial. But in many ways, these women are terrified already. They live in the midst of the constant terror and trauma of military occupation. So they've seen all manner of traumatic injustice in their lives. They know the soul-crushing terror of living in an unjust system with no hope. They've also been through the trauma of watching their friends, someone they love deeply, die a gruesome and shameful death on the cross. If all of this happened to Jesus, they must be thinking, it can happen to us. And Friday's terror now gives way to a new terror as the women arrive to find the stone removed and a strange young man with an outlandish story. This isn't comforting to them. Again, they run away terrified, unable to even speak of what they saw. They went to a place expecting death, and they found life. And that will always terrify you. When I was a little boy, I remember the first time I ever attended a funeral. I was really nervous about the whole thing. I must have been about five years old. But unbeknownst to me, there would be an open casket. This freaked me out. By the time I dared to look at dear old Uncle Lonnie in his casket, I had worked myself up into a frenzy. I looked and I looked back again, and in my mind at least, I saw him sit up in the casket, and I started to scream. <laughs> He's alive! He's alive! I saw him move! But no, Lonnie was indeed dead. I wonder if you've come here today and are saying, you know, this is really nice, but no, Jesus is indeed dead. You aren't expecting to find resurrection. And that's okay. I mean, who does? It's a bit terrifying because if this is true, these women and you have just lost control of your life. I mean, it feels much safer for these women and for us if Jesus were in that tomb and they could just do the familiar. But the resurrection calls us out of familiar and into transformation. It's terrifying for them because now 
they have a new story to tell that no one is going to believe. It's just too disruptive. I think the beginning of turning from terror to amazement to transformation is connecting these dots between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Because it grounds the resurrection in real history. Because the evil being done, being overcome in the resurrection was a real world evil, a historic evil. God really defeats the powers of this world. That's what the resurrection says when you connect it to the crucifixion. And for those who are living in oppressed communities and are part of a marginalized communities, this is everything. As Kelly Brown Douglas says in her masterful work, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God. The resurrection of the one who died such a hideous and ignominious death firmly establishes that God does not in any way sanction the suffering of human beings. The resurrection asserts the sanctity of human life as it overcomes all the forces that would deny it. The resurrection, in effect, makes plain the wrongness of the crucifixion, and thus of all crucifying realities. It shows that death does not have the last word. It is in under, understanding the crucifixion-resurrection event in relation to each other that allowed black people to sing, He arose, He arose from the dead, and the Lord shall bear my spirit home. See, Jesus' crucifixion is a picture of all the oppressions and injustices of this world being turned upside down, including your oppression, whatever that might be today. And as Douglas points out, if you look like me and you live in such a world of privilege where oppression's axe hasn't come down on your hopes and dreams and traumatized your body, you won't be terrified by resurrection. You'll turn it into an otherworldly victory over cosmic evil only. It is that, but not merely that. The victory of the cross before we jump ahead to cosmic evil is a repudiation of earthly evil and a call to implement the implications of resurrection right here and right now. I mean, we celebrate this year, the resurrection this year, in the shadow of 2.7 million beloveds we've lost to COVID-19 worldwide. In the United States, we will celebrate the empty tomb in the wake of three still raw mass shootings, desperate migrants at our southern border, mass unemployment and food insecurity, a deepening crisis of pandemic-induced loneliness, depression, and anxiety, and the ongoing scourge of racial tension, violence, and injustice in our streets and institutions. See, resurrection means that God can overturn these very crucifying realities just as surely as God overturned the crucifixion of Jesus into resurrection. So we move from terror to hope to amazement because Easter is also amazing.
These amazed women represent everyone watching right now, willing to ask this simple question, what if this is true? These women, like most everyone under military occupation, wondered if God would ever actually act again on their behalf. When you wait that long, you rightly begin to wonder if God will ever step in and do something. And they had promises from their own scriptures, for sure. We read one earlier from Isaiah chapter 25, where it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. These women knew that prophecy. This was a part of their tradition. But will it ever happen? Will these things ever take place? Because a crucified Messiah is a failed Messiah. Unless there's a resurrection. And maybe, maybe they're thinking, has God personally secured this future in the resurrection of Jesus? Maybe then they remember what Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because it provokes this question. Is that then what God is like? Not retributive, not promising vengeance, but rather leading with forgiveness? Now the words from Isaiah, he will swallow up death forever, has been embodied in the human body of Jesus. And they are amazed. Jesus reveals a God who would come down and do business with death itself, motivated by relentless, insistent love. They will never think of God the same way again. They will never think of themselves the same way either. And I would say specifically, their failure and yours will never be thought of the same way again. It is not the final word. Why do I say that? You'll notice the angelic figure says, tell the disciples. He doesn't say, tell those scallywags, those backstappers, those cowards, those you know, people who have no courage like you do. Tell those ones who ran and fled. I got a word or two for them. No, he tells, he calls them disciples. And do you see it? It says, tell his disciples and Peter. Fascinating. The angelic figure says, tell his disciples and Peter. He wanted Peter to know. Peter, who had denied Jesus three times. He wants Peter to know there's grace abounding for him. In fact, this is what Jesus does throughout his resurrection. 
you'll notice in all the resurrection appearances, Jesus is just forgiving everyone and everything. He'll eventually make breakfast on the side of a lake for Peter because Jesus is someone who makes breakfast for failures. For failures. See, it's terror and amazement. Not terror or amazement. It's both of these held together. If it's terror only, I think we're paralyzed. You felt that way before, I bet. Something new and unexpected has come into your world, and the thought of changing how you think about something is terrifying. These women have a story to tell that will upset everyone and their tidy systems of belief with no real prospect that anyone will ever believe them. This is in some ways a picture of every one of you who have deconstruction, deconstructed and are now reconstructing your faith. The fear of talking about what you have begun to see is paralyzing. And if it's just amazement, well, I wonder. If it's just amazement for you, I wonder if you have crafted a life that's made no room for pain or death. I mean, denial, especially of death, seems to be an American pastime. I mean, over the past year, it seems our federal response to the pandemic was see no COVID, hear no COVID, speak no COVID. The refusal to wear masks, even if it takes defying medical advice and common sense, is another form of denial. The resurrection of Jesus happens in the very midst of our trauma. Resurrection amazement takes place in the midst of a world that is marred by racial and sexual and gender and economic violence. A world that is marred by white supremacy, mass shootings, AAPI violence on our streets, of political corruption that keeps the poor poorer. It is exactly in a world like that where resurrection springs up. We've all seen it in the last year. If we have eyes to see it, if we will notice resurrection in the midst of the most difficult year of our lives, perhaps. It was seen in small ways, but huge. Hospital workers laboring in long and dangerous shifts. What courage. Teachers talking about courage day after day, creatively teaching their students against all odds. Supermarket and pharmacy employees risking their lives to make sure that people can get the food and medicines they need. Picture a COVID nurse at her dinner break, seated by her computer screen with a cup of grape juice and a morsel of bread participating in an online Eucharist. Police officers kneeling alongside protesters or at demonstrations following the deaths of George Floyd, Rayshard Brooks, and Breonna Taylor. The courage and tireless efforts of public health officials who have had to be the bearer of bad tidings for a year trying to keep everyone safe. And now miraculous vaccines that were procured by the brilliance and resilience of scientists who joined God in the healing arts as lives are now being spared. Friends, those are just a few of the things 
that the risen Lord is doing among us today. It's both and. And we hold both of these, terror and amazement. That's why one of my favorite theologians and a real credit to the name Fred, we need all the help we can get, (laughs) Frederick Buechner says this, here's the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. Resurrection enables us to say something like that. And so it's terrifying, it's amazing, but it's also an invitation. I mean, look at this passage and the way it ends. We still have no Jesus at the end of this passage. Only the admonition to meet up with him in Galilee. One of the beautiful things about this account of the resurrection, it's just so open-ended. Kind of like the world we have before us right now. And what will happen now? We know from the other accounts that the women will indeed be the bold, heroic first apostles to proclaim the good news. But Mark leaves it open-ended for all of us, I think because resurrection is not simply a conclusion. It is an invitation to live into this story, to redirect your entire life. What place of death is God calling you to leave right now for a place of life? What place of death is God calling you to leave right now for a place of life? Something in your life, maybe no one knows about it, and you know it to be a place of death. Could be a behavior, could be an attitude, could be a relationship, could be a church that doesn't really want you to be part of its ministry, could be a family or a friendship that has become toxic. Where is Jesus saying to you right now, meet me in, but it's not Galilee, but where is it? Meet me in a community that will welcome you, celebrate you and work for your flourishing, in a new set of behaviors that will bring resurrection to your life, in a, term, in a determination to do the interior work you need to do to better understand yourself in a reordering of your priorities to use your power and privilege for the liberation of everyone? Where is Galilee, the place Jesus says he will meet you for you today? Where is Galilee for you today? The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ, and you are now invited to belong to it. You know, usually Easter is the nicest Sunday of the year. Everybody gets dressed up. There's all sorts of beautiful flowers and lovely pastels. We're breaking through the cold winter months. It's all so nice. And we dress up all nicely. Usually, I mean, I know most of you right now may be watching this in your jammies at home. Easter is nice. But the resurrection means that God is not really about making you nice, but new. New. 
and new when it begins to break into the cracks and crevices of your life is messy. New is a recovering alcoholic. New is the person who is getting the help for their addictions for the first time and starting to hope for something more in their life. New is admitting that you are wrong and somehow not gloating when you are right. New is every act of forgiveness. Not retrusting, but forgiveness, forgiving. Because the toxicity of holding on to that grudge that you've been nursing has begun to dehumanize your life. New is when God comes down and pulls us out of the graves of our lies and our violence and our arrogance and our selfishness and does CPR on us and brings new life into us once again to be the recipients of grace and start to believe that, oh yes, God actually does love me. That's new. The invitation to newness of life in the midst of death. In 1966, a coal mine disaster struck the West, the Welsh village of Aberfan, killing scores of people, many of them children taken down while at their village school. I'll bet many of you know what I'm talking about because it showed up in an episode of The Crown, the television series that was so amazing. It was based, one episode was based on that disaster. And Queen Elizabeth is portrayed as too distant and emotionally reserved to respond to the crisis. She even refuses to attend the funeral, sending her husband, Prince Philip, instead. And at the funeral, the camera pans across an almost unbearably tragic sight. The villagers gathered in the cemetery before an open grave, holding a row of the coffins of their lost children, dozens of them one placed next to the other. Peter weeps as the villagers in profound grief began to sing Charles Wesley's hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. When Philip goes back to Buckingham Palace, the queen asks him, how was it? He responds, 81 children were buried today. The rage in all the faces, behind all the eyes. But they didn't smash things up. They didn't fight in the streets. What did they do, the queen asks. They sang, the whole community, the most astonishing thing I ever heard. This time a year ago, I sat in this very same dining room in my home to lead and preach in our Easter service. I didn't think we'd be doing this again this year, but here we are. More than 550,000 deaths in the U.S. from COVID later. And yet, we sing. We sing, we hope, we demand. We insist 
on the central affirmation of Easter. Again and again, God brings life out of death. Death is not the final word. COVID is not the final word. Evil, disease, oppression, hopelessness, death itself are only the second to last word. Our God insists on having the last word, the very last word, and that is always a word of healing, of liberation, of hope, a word of life. Christ is risen. The grave is empty. Love is eternal. And death's defeat is sure. Nothing will be lost. Christ has given it to you. It is yours. And sometimes, to quote the late Rachel Held Evans, just showing up, burial spices in hand, is all it takes to witness a miracle. Let us pray. Gracious God, come quickly, we pray, to do your resurrecting work. Terrify us and amaze us. Give us grace today to meet you in Galilee, wherever that may be. Amen.